0: Hey guys, thanks for coming. My name is Josh Chevalier. If I haven't met you, I'm the college pastor here at Midtown. Um, so if you're a college student, I probably met you. If not, there's a 50-50 chance I met you. So welcome. Glad you're here. I'm actually glad that I'm here as well. So there is a 50-50 percent chance that I actually wasn't going to be here today, considering my wife is like 38 weeks pregnant and that baby is like ready to come out. So we're having like contractions uh, pretty often. And so uh, we, I just wasn't sure if I was going to be here, which, you know, Justin or Jake would have had to just come up and just give my notes. So <laughs> lucky for you, uh, I'm here. So no, I'm just kidding. So glad to be here. Um, since I have the stage and I'm the college pastor, I'm going to promote some college stuff real quick. We actually have a midweek gathering every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock in the Eastwoods room in the Union. Um, and this week, we actually have a special one because it's, anybody know what Wednesday is? I didn't know that. I'm not that spiritual. Uh, but it is Valentine's Day. And if you don't have plans and you're a college student, we're actually doing a relationships dating singleness forum in uh, the boxes and the Christophers, the Colenses, um, And then we have a token single person that's coming as well to give the single view on things, named Matt Tolender. So if you're a college student and you want something to do on Valentine's Day, we would love to be your other person. So. Come join us. We'll be excited. So, hey, we're going to continue to Malachi today with this series, A Call to Love the God Who Loves You. And so the first few weeks, we've actually been having this conversation. We're entered into this conversation that Malachi is having uh, with the people of Israel. And it's pretty obvious from the beginning that there is some conflict here, that the Israelites are not in a healthy place. So we see very early on in Malachi 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, we see that God says to them, I have loved you. And in response, they go, God, how have you loved you? How have you loved us? That there's this cynicism they have of God's love for them. And then later on in chapter 1, we actually see that they show disrespect to God by their sacrifices, and that they actually uh, don't have a lot of value or honor for God. And then we see in chapter 2 that it actually begins to seep not only into their relationship with God, but also into their relationship with others. So we see that there begins to be some relational brokenness in the most intimate relationships that they could have with their spouses. And really Malachi is written as basically this, what's called this disputation method where God is actually having this dispute between Israel and, and himself. And we've seen three so far, and today we're going to get to the fourth dispute where the Israelites actually begin to question the character of God. And uh, as we do that, we're going to look at these two things that they say. One, accusing God of, doing, of approving of evil. And the second, saying, where is the God of justice? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have probably been in that place at some point. And so today we're going to talk about this idea of God and the problem of evil and suffering and where is God in the midst of of pain and brokenness. And so I'm not going to lie, there's going to be parts of today that are going to be pretty heavy. I'm going to try to make it light at different times at the appropriate times. Um, but we'll see how that goes. So um, let's, uh, we're going to pray and uh, then we'll get started. <clears throat> God, thank you so much for today. <laughs> I'm just so thankful that we have a place that we can gather to express our love and appreciation for what you've done for us. God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts as this, this uh, idea of evil and suffering in the world uh, is not one that is abstract or foreign to us. For many of us, it hits very close to home. God, so I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would see you for who you are. We would see you accurately, that you are good and loving God, and that that would be reflected in our relationship with you. God, we love you and praise you in your name. Amen. I want to say one thing up front before I really get into it. I know that, like I pray, that this is a deeply personal issue for many of us, that this idea of how God is interacting with the world, particularly with evil and suffering in our own lives is deeply personal. And so if there's anything that's said today and you want to talk more and you don't feel like you have somebody to talk to, I would love to be that person. Um, On the other side of that, I know there's a lot of people that love to argue theology and this idea of God and evil and how that interacts is also something that people like to talk about from an objective theological point of view. Um, If you want to do that, you uh, you can send an email. I'll give you an email address you can send it to Um, If you want to break out your phones, you can. Uh, Jake at MidtownAustin.org. J-A-K-E at MidtownAustin.org. And Jake would love to talk to you about any issues you have with what I say today. You can email me. I will not give you my email address. You can go on the website and find it. Uh, If you email me, I do have a special place in my spam folder for emails like that. But... Feel free. So, all right, we're going to start off Malachi 2:17. So Malachi 2:17 says this: "You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied Him?" you ask?" by saying, "All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He is pleased with them." Or, "Where is the God of justice?" And you can see very quickly that they are actually accusing God of being evil that not only does he look on those who do evil and say that they're good, but he is also pleased with them. And then they ask this question, where is the God of justice? And I don't think it's necessarily a sincere question that many of us ask in our lives, but it's more of a a statement in question form. But when you read the statement in question being made by the Israelites, everything said and done by the Israelites before this actually makes sense. For example... If you think that God is not altogether loving, then I can see why you would be cynical of his love for you. If you think that God is untrustworthy, then I can see why you would not offer your best sacrifices. If you think that God doesn't have your best interest in mind, then I can see why you would respond with unfaithfulness in your relationships. Because in the end, why does it matter? But what I found in life to be true is that our mental picture of God actually shapes the way that we interact with him. Gregory Boyd, in his book, Is God to Blame?, says it this way. The most important aspect of our faith is our mental picture of God. The way that we actually envision God may not be reflected in the theology we articulate. When asked what we think about God, we may recite all the orthodox attributes that he's loving, omniscient, omnipotent, while entertaining a mental picture of God that is unloving and severely limited. And here it is. I want you guys to hear this in particular. Yet, our actual picture of God, not our theoretical knowledge about God, most influences how we feel about Him. It's impossible to enjoy a genuinely passion, passionate, and this is supposed to say, in loving relationship with God when our mental picture of Him doesn't inspire passionate love. And I think this is a great picture of how the Malachites, sorry, how the Israelites are viewing um, God in Malachi at this point. We see that they see God as untrustworthy, not altogether loving, and that He doesn't have their best interest in mind. And their mental picture of God is actually leading them to make destructive choices, not only in their relationship with God but also in their relationship with other people. And this idea that our mental picture of God shapes the way that we interact with them is not only true in our interaction with God, but it's also true in our interactions with others as well. Our mental picture of how we view another person actually shapes the way that we interact with them. In fact, uh, before I worked here, I actually worked at a church called Hill Country Bible Church up in Cedar Park. And I was a college pastor there, and in 2009, we started the college ministry. And after a year, um, God did some really cool things, and things started to blow up and got really big, and with more students, became uh, more people that didn't like me, which was fun, uh, and one of them was a guy named, well, I actually won't mention his name, because <laughs> this isn't going to go well for him, so uh, but there, was a, there was a student that didn't like me, and so he decided one day that he was going to share his thoughts in an email, um, and so he, and this is like honestly, and I'm sharing this because it didn't hurt my feelings, actually I felt encouraged by it, but um, but he sends this email to me, and he goes, Josh, I need you to know that I think that you are the most manipulative person that I've ever, I've ever met in my life. I see the people that you've put around you, and you are basically a master puppeteer, just, ma- just having all these other people on strings as pu- your own puppets. He's like, I see the, the uh, what did he say? He said, I see the, the smooth words that you use and the charm, He's like, but I want you to know that it is not going to work on me. He's like, I see the, and he mentioned one student by name, and a lot of college students know this guy. He's like, I see the way that Matt Tolander talks, and it's exactly what you say. He's like, you're just using him as a puppet. And then in the end, he, and this is the part that I love the most. He goes, he goes, you, he's like, when you talk, he's like, you flex your muscles, and they're not even that big. (laughs) But this, this dude had, like, and I mean, and I had some, like, really good leaders around me. And I was like, man, for him to think that I could, like, manipulate all these, like, strong people, I was like, that's pretty impressive, although not true. But he had this mental picture of me, and he had so studied me that he looked at even, like, the way I would flex my muscles when I talk. And, I'll, you know, I don't have muscles, and it's true, they're small. But he had this mental picture of me that shaped the way that he had interacted with me. And I wonder if some of us have that with God as well. Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen how your mental picture of God actually shapes the way that you interact with Him? In 2008, the summer of 2008, I got engaged to my wife, Kari. And it was June 8, 2008, was one of the happiest days of my life. And 10 days later, I actually found out that my mom got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Now, they gave her six months to live, and point. 4% chance of living beyond five years. And my mom was 48 years old. She was young. And she had the, her life ahead of her. And I gotta, I gotta be honest that I was devastated in that moment. This idea that I could lose my mom at such a young age, I just, I didn't understand. But the silver lining in it all is I was actually working at a really great church. It was called Mosaic out in L.A., and we had just gone through this series called Life's Toughest Questions, and one of the talks was about does God care about this problem of human suffering in the world? And I had great friends around me, and I was in this church that just handled this idea of suffering and evil in a really good way, and so I was thankful. And if you ask me if I blame God for what happened to my mom or if I thought he was unloving or untrustworthy... I would have emphatically told you no, until four years later. My wife gets pregnant with our first, uh, our daughter Mackenzie. And I remember like the day that your wife gets pregnant is supposed to be like on the Mount Rushmore, the happiest days of your life. And for me it was, like I was so happy when she got pregnant, yet my joy quickly turned to anxiety as I began to ask my question, this question to God, God, are you going to take away this, my daughter from me? So for the next nine months, like, I didn't have joy over this, this coming birth. I actually had fear and anxiety that God was going to take away what was going to become one of the most precious things to me. And I had this dominant belief inside of me that God did not want good things for me. And this belief had become awakened In this pregnancy. And to be honest, I struggled with it for years. And to this day, I I have moments where I struggle with it. See, I had a perceived belief that God was good, but my true mental picture of God was that he was untrustworthy, not altogether loving, and that he didn't have my best interest in mind. In fact, from the beginning, there have been three foundational lies about God's character at the root of all sin that we have been tempted to believe And those three are just that, that he is untrustworthy, that he is not altogether loving, and that he doesn't have our best interest in mind. Simply put, God is holding out on us. And I had bought these lies, and naturally they had affected the way I interacted with them. So a couple ways that it affected me is like, I didn't trust God with the things that I cared about the most. And so in smaller things in life, things that I didn't care about, I would trust him, but and the most intimate things, the things that really mattered, I didn't trust them. And the second is that when I would pray, I would pray to God, but I actually wouldn't pray with a conviction that it actually mattered. That God was going to do whatever He wanted to do, good or bad, and that my interactions with Him didn't actually influence any of that. And so we had a good relationship. I would describe my Relationship with God during those years is good, but it wasn't very intimate, and it wasn't great. There was not a depth to my relationship. Because as you know in your human relationships, that if you can't trust somebody with the deepest things in your life, the things you care about most, then you actually aren't going to have a very intimate relationship with that person Namely, God. And I wonder for us in this room how many of us struggle with these same things. If we went around the room, I'm guessing that many of us could tell stories of, of pain, personal pain and suffering, evil that's been done to us, stories of abuse, physical, verbal, sexual, stories of infidelity of parents' divorces that have ravaged us, caused cynicism and distrust of others. Maybe personal divorces that we have gone through. And all these things have led to an unflattering mental picture of who God is and is shaping the way that you are interacting with him. I think many of us have bought these foundational lies that I mentioned and it's hindering our relationship with God. And we see that with the Israelites, right? They have this mental picture of God, that he's unloving, he's untrustworthy, and he doesn't have their best interest in mind. And so they make the statement, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? But God, in his graciousness, answers them. And he gives them an answer with a messianic prophecy that we're going to see here in Malachi 3.1. He says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord God Almighty. So what is he saying here? There's three characters here. We have a, my messenger who will prepare the way for me. You have the messenger of the com- covenant. And then you have the Lord Almighty. So the first one, the, my messenger... So, we uh, God gives us a little bit of an idea of who this is um, in the scriptures in another place. But before I do, I, before I talk about that, I was talking about this with a buddy of mine uh, at Chick Fil A on Friday night. I was, we were kind of breaking down Malachi three two. You'll see it's kind of confusing in a minute. And so we were talking about it in the middle of Chick Fil A. My kids were playing at the playground, and we were we were chatting about it. And we were going through this verse three one, and um, you know, trying to figure out who the messengers were and things like that. And all of a sudden, from the side, we hear this voice. We look up, and we're like, is it the voice of God? Because it's like, that's not a good idea on who we thought the messenger was. And, uh, and we ended up having this hour-long conversation with this guy in Chick-fil-A that was super random and not expected about these church planning movements that this electrical engineer was leading, where thousands of people are coming to faith in, and like, literally thousands of churches are being planted every year. So it was really interesting, but nothing to do with this story. <laughs> My messenger. So we see Jesus gives us a little picture into this in the New Testament, Matthew eleven seven through ten. He tells us who this messenger is. He speaks of, says, uh, as John's disciples were leaving, uh, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus in Matthew 11 identifies this messenger as John the Baptist which makes the second messenger, the messenger of the covenant, Jesus. And so we can see that in Malachi 3.1, that this is actually a messianic prophecy about Jesus. So what is he saying? When they ask this, this question of where is the God of justice, what God is saying is the God of justice, the Messiah, the one whom you desire, will come and is coming. And his name is Jesus. And you have to understand that the Israelites at this time, what's going on and why they're kind of cynical is that they're in this post-exilic time where they have been brought out of exile. The temple's been rebuilt and then years have passed. But what they had thought was going to happen is they were going to rebuild the temple. The Messiah was going to come and God was going to make all things right. But years have passed. The temple had been built and that hope that they had had turned to hopelessness. And so here they are questioning the character of God, and what God says is I am sending the one that you long for. He is coming and his name is Jesus. And one of the one of the beautiful things that we know that they don't know is we know what Jesus does for us, right? We know that what he does for us on the cross, but one of the things that he also does to it, for us is that in Jesus, we actually see who God is in his character and what he's like. So we can see that Jesus actually reveals the character of God. And so in Jesus, we see three things about God, or we see, um, we see God's character. And there's a few things that, are, uh, that we see about Jesus in the New Testament. It says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 says, He's also the exact representation of God, as Hebrews 1.3 says. And then last, we see that Jesus has made God known to us. In John 1.18, he says, says it this way, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In Jesus, we see that he fully represents God in his character. So in Jesus, how does God answer the three foundational lies that we see? The first one, he is not trustworthy. How does he answer that in Jesus? In Jesus, we see in Philippians 2, 5, and 9, we see the posture, 5 through 9, we see the posture that Jesus has in in his coming to earth. And we see it this way. It says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider a quality of God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, yes, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So what do we see about Jesus? We see that he was a servant, that he was humble, that he made himself nothing. It says that right here, he says that he was equal with God. But instead of using that to his own advantage, he actually chose to serve. Earlier in Philippians 2, Paul actually tells the people of Philippi, that they should not look to seek, seek their own interest, but the interest of others above themselves. And we see this marked out in the life of Jesus, that he constantly sought the interest of others above himself. That somebody who exemplifies these characteristics as a servant, as a humble who puts others above himself, can be nothing but trustworthy. In fact, the early, early followers of Jesus found him so trustworthy that they were willing to give their lives for their belief in him. Don't miss that. The people that were closest with Jesus, the ones that walked with him, were willing to die for this man. They found him to be trustworthy. So much so that they were willing to give up everything, yes, even their own lives. Second lie, he is not altogether loving. What we see in Christ is that he actually shows ultimate love by dying on the cross for us. So in John 15, 13, it says that no greater love has anyone than this, that he lay down his life for someone else. Jesus obviously lays down his life for us and shows this ultimate example of love. And then lastly, he does not have our best interest in mind. Well, in John 10 10, it says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life, and life to the full. That God 100% absolutely has your best interest in mind. And what we discover in Jesus is that the Israelites had God all wrong, that he is not evil. He doesn't approve of those who do evil, and he has not gone absent. In fact, what we discover is that God, through Jesus, will eradicate evil once and for all. That in Jesus, we see God's solution to the evil in the world. In Malachi 3, 2-4 says this. God continues through Malachi, he says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So God starts off and he asks him two rhetorical questions. The first... Who can endure the day of his coming? The second is who can stand when he appears? What is God saying here? He's saying that there's going to be a coming and there's going to be a judgment. And he's saying, who's going to be able to stand? And the answer is no one. In our own strength, no one will stand. What he's talking about here is in the second coming of Christ is what he's he's revealing to us. In the second coming of Christ, we see that there is going to be complete judgment of the world. In Revelations 20, 11 through 15, it says this. I'm going to use a lot of scripture because this is is a heavy topic, and I'm going to put this in scripture and not my own opinion. But in Revelation 20, we see the great white throne judgment at the end of time, and it says this. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the written book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then in Malachi, the end of verse 2, he goes on he says, For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. That when Jesus comes back, he's going to be like a refiner's fire. This idea here is um, this idea of a refiner that's sitting over that has this metal, and he's putting it over this hot flame. And it's literally, if you can think about this metal, it's like precious gold or precious metal or gold. It's holding over a flame and it's mixed in with a bunch of impurities. And this flame, what it's doing is melting away the impurities. And it's purifying the gold. And what the refiner does is he actually takes the impurities out. And what he's left with is this pure gold. What God is talking about here is that this refiner's fire is going to bring about purity. Then he says he's also like a launderer's soap, which is essentially like a bleaching agent. It's a cleaning agent. And so what happens is that in a launderer's soap, something is made spotless or white. This idea of being clean or spotless or without blemish. If you're familiar with, with verses in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you know this is similar to what God says about us through Jesus. So who can stand in the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is those who are pure, clean, spotless, without blemish. And for us, this is exactly what Jesus has made available on the cross. So read Colossians. Uh, we're going to read Colossians 1, 21 and 22, and then two thirteen through 14. It says this, Once you are alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you as holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. And then verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, all the evil that we've done. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, Which stood against us and condemned us. This picture that our sins were being piled up. And in the cross, when we accept Jesus, He takes those away. It says He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So, hear this if you believe in Jesus, what He has done for us and for you is He has made you pure, He's made you clean, He's made you spotless. He's made you without blemish. So when God sees you, he does not see your sin or the evil you've done. He sees you with Christ's righteousness. What we see in both the first and second coming of Jesus is that God is judging sin and working towards removing evil in the world. That Jesus' ultimate solution to evil or God's ultimate solution to evil is Jesus. In his first coming, what we see is that it's more personal. That God is absolving evil within each person through Jesus. So God is removing the penalty and power of evil or sin for those who believe in Jesus. In the second coming, we see this as more of a final judgment, right? That Jesus is God's solution to evil in the world. That God is removing evil by destroying all that is evil and corrupt. In 2 Peter 3, it says this, 3 through 9. It says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And hear this similar language to Malachi, the Israelites in Malachi. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water And by these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That there will be a day when God will destroy all evil in the world in the second coming. But God is being patient with his second coming because he longs for everyone to believe in him. So there's a huge but here that um, Peter uses. And he says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Hear this, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. See, what we discover about God in Jesus is that he is not evil. He doesn't approve of those who are evil. He is not absent. No, the reality is he is more loving than we could ever imagine. And there's evils that are in this world that are not absent yet because God longs for for us as individuals to come into a relationship with him. And he longs to solve the evil within us through our acceptance of His Son and what He has done for us. But one day God will bring retribution for all the evil that's been done in the world. In Malachi 3:5 it says this, "So I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So what is he saying? I think what God is saying here is that he sees the evil that's done among them and he's going to do something about it one day. He says it a different way in Revelations 18, 4 through 8. He says this, He says, then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in their sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself, in her boast, in her boast, in her heart she boasts, "I sit a throne, enthroned as queen. I am not a widow; I will never mourn." Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her: death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Here's what we know. There is real evil that's being done in the world. We don't have to go too far to see it. This is what the Me Too movement is all about. The evil and the oppression that we see in the world. Just like we mentioned earlier in some of our own stories, we see stories of abuse and oppression, human trafficking, slavery, child soldiering, racism. But there's not only evil out there, there's also evil that's being done to us in this room. And so there is abuse that's been done to us or oppression, discrimination, Real pain and hurt. If we went around the room, many of us could tell stories of how we've been in, influenced or the evils that have been done to us. And what I want you to hear is that God sees it. He sees the evil that's been done to you, He sees you, He sees your pain. He sees the evil that's been done to you and he promises that one day there will be retribution for that pain. He has not forgotten about you. He loves you. And do not, for, for, do not confuse his delaying of retribution for that evil as, his, as him being absent are loving. In fact, his scriptures say that he sits with us and he mourns with us in the midst of our pain. And so if you have things that have been done to you, God longs for you to draw near to him, for you to know him as an intimate father, to trust him as the one who is loving, who is good, who does have your best interest in mind. And as we come to the table Of Jesus today, let us remember the goodness and love of God expressed to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. May we we remember that He has removed the penalty and power of evil and sin from us who believe in Him. This morning, these tables are open to anyone who has turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to take this moment to reflect on whether you want to turn to Jesus. That there is one who wants to take the evil that's been done to you and the evil that is inside of you, He wants to take that away. I'm going to pray for us. God, this is such a heavy topic. As I know that it's incredibly intimate and personal. And I know I've been affected by evil done to me and I know that I've actually affected others with the evil that I've done to them and the pain that I've caused them. God, I do thank you that you do offer us repentance God, you offer to wash away the evil inside of us, to forgive us of our sins, to cancel the debts that are against us. God, I thank you that you promised to change us and to make us more like you. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to forgive those who have wronged us, the evil that's been done for us, knowing that as your scriptures say, that one day there will be vindication, there will be retribution for what's been done. God, may we see you as trustworthy, altogether loving, and as one who has our best interests in mind. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen.